Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. From 9th to 11th May 2023, the United States Army War College will host the second annual Strategic Land Power Symposium at the Army Heritage and Education Center here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Notable guest speakers will include the commander of U.S. Army Pacific, the chief of the National Guard Bureau, and the commander of Third Corps. Bringing together students, scholars, and practitioners, the symposium aims to advance the concepts surrounding the role of strategic land power in cooperation, competition, integrated deterrence, and joint all-domain operations by presenting original research to senior leaders about how land power can help achieve future national objectives. As part of the symposium, the U.S. Army War College Strategic Land Power Integrated Research Project, or IRP, has gathered 12 members of the U.S. Army War College Class of 2023 to address aspects of the future role of strategic land power as part of their Master in Strategic Studies degree research requirement as students at the War College. They will make presentations at the symposium on a wide range of topics. To amplify their work, A Better Peace has organized multiple podcast sessions with those students to discuss their projects, their relationship to the Strategic Land Power Symposium, and possible implications for the future of U.S. security policy. This is the second of those sessions, and today's topic is artificial intelligence with Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Sinden and Lieutenant Colonel Jessica Garrett Somsich. Lieutenant Colonel Andrew Sinden was a task force senior at the Joint Readiness Training Center at Fort Polk, and before that, the Division Operations Officer for the 10th Mountain Division in Afghanistan. Lieutenant Colonel Jessica Garrett Somsish is a student at the U.S. Army War College, and she is a chemical and logistics officer with the Kentucky Army National Guard. Welcome to a better peace, colleagues. Hi. Thank you. Hey, Ron. Yeah, thanks for having us tonight. It's it's great to have you both. So Andy and Jessica, I want to give you each a chance to summarize your specific research topics, and then we can get into sort of a broader conversation. So um, like we like they say on uh, on Wheel of Fortune, we flipped a coin beforehand backstage, which we actually didn't. But I'm going to ask, I'm going to go in alphabetical order. And Jessica, I'm going to ask you to go first. When I started looking at a topic that I wanted to research, um, I'm a logistics and chemical officer, but logistics is where I've spent the majority of my time um, in the Guard, uh, both in Virginia and Kentucky. And what we struggle to do historically or always is um, be quick at um, predicting, supporting, um, delivering, and then kind of being able to by phase, continue with operations and how we support them. So when I looked at AI, I actually looked at artificial intelligence and additive manufacturing. And I know that there's, you know, we're doing some things in AI, but not in sustainment. And particularly in areas where I thought maybe we could have some small wins to consolidate gains and build what I think is our ultimate 
goal right now with AI, which is to kind of build trust in that system. Um, because if we can build some trust in it in the sustainment community, then my goal is that when you move over into maneuver and we're using real systems where people die, that the um, idea of having to find something new, get that trust again, it, it's already there. So you don't need to. So when I looked at AI and additive manufacturing, I thought, let's see how we can do our best to get those small wins. I looked at AI and the Internet of Military Things and the Internet of Battlefield Things. And so for sustainment, we primarily want to use the Internet of Military Things. And that is every uh, piece of equipment, soldier, platform, communications device, everything, right, is a sensor. So we use everything as a sensor in that battle space of military things to then feed our own cloud, which we're kind of used to. And then that cloud feeds clean data to our own AI internally. Now, my goal would be that if we can do that and we can do it cleanly, then that AI is now ours, which is something the Department of Defense is looking to obtain. And if it's ours, can we now use it to feed the industrial base so that they know when to turn on and turn off, you know, as quickly as possible? Can we use it to do resupply of operations worldwide? because you don't have to be in the cloud to make those decisions. You can do them anywhere. Um, one of the things or several things I looked at with AI were Amazon. Uh, they're just go technology. They're just walk out technology. Um, they're whole foods technology that they're using right now. So if we look at just their just walk out and whole foods model, they aren't even using hum humans in the stores. It's all done by robotics and AI. So when you walk into the store, you're automatically picked up by your phone, which is something we could easily translate into warehouse operations that we use in the Army. Uh, you're picked up. You take stuff off the shelf. It goes in your basket. You walk out. They charge your Prime account. They've been doing this for several years now, um, and, and we still are lagging when we look at Defense Logistics Agency and how we do sustainment operations in general in the Army with even wrapping our head around the fact that that exists and we could leverage that in smaller ways in order to kind of bring us up to where the civilian sector is. When you look at Amazon, so if we, we step outside of the just walk out, but now we're looking at Amazon proper, the way they are leveraging AI to deliver supplies and services is unreal. Um, their AI reroutes vehicles with autonomously, there's no human doing it. They see, oh, there's something going on on this route. We're going to reroute this delivery. It's going to arrive on time. You know, we have transportation officers who are still looking at maps and, you know, CPOF or whatever's replacing that in the future to say, oh, this route's blocked. Let me talk to somebody. What are we going to do? So if we could leverage just a smidge of that technology, we'd be light years ahead of where we are now. Uh, and then finally, looking at it to just extend our footprint in large-scale combat operations. So if we're fighting in dispersed operations, sustainment is hard. Uh, it, it, I use the word hard and it's simple, but I don't know another word to describe it. So if we're able to leverage AI to make predictions based on sensors on the battlefield, what's being expended, how quickly, and then that's tied into our AI and the industrial base, we can support in ways we haven't been able to before. 
Um, I used Operation Warp Speed in Tiberias. I was um, part of the COVID-19 vaccine distribution plan in Kentucky. Um, it was difficult. But what was amazing was that Operation Warp Speed stood up Tiberius, which was a platform that harnessed not only vaccine in the commercial sector, who was delivering it, but it also took into account um, online census data, which was open source. It used commercial logistics, vaccine tracking, and it combined all of those things to feed by state reporting, analysis, and delivery of the vaccine. Now, states had a, a play in it if they wanted to, and most did because how can we just trust this system telling us where vaccine needs to go? We must, it's got to be wrong somewhere. The humans got to look at it and, and tell us. But really what we found was while the humans within Kentucky did look at where the vaccine needed to go, that Tiberius system made accurate predict predictions over 99% of the time and would be able to push that vaccine where it needed. So we've done this and, and the Army's used it. DOD, General Perna was in charge of that. Um, if we can now take that and leverage it for further use, that'd be great. The additive manufacturing piece I added in um, because when I thought about small wins, I thought, man, in additive manufacturing, we have the Joint Additive Manufacturing Working Group, which stood up in 2016. We have a strategy for additive manufacturing, but we're still stuck. And part of the reason we're stuck is the quality assurance and control isn't moving quickly. The Army is a zero defect, 100% right all the time uh, organization. And when we look at, hey, we kind of want to move quicker. How do we do that? Well, we assume some risk. And I joke that sustainment is the best place to assume risk because we're not going to kill anyone. And no one's going to die if they get a screw wrong for the door on a Humvee. One screw. That's not going to cause the whole thing to wreck. Uh, no one's going to die if when we print out, you know, a part or class eight materials or something small that's expendable and, and it doesn't work right the first time. What I do advocate is that we start now in sustainment, looking at those small items that can be produced at the lowest level possible so that we can, one, build trust in that, that process. So our soldiers are receiving training in additive manufacturing now instead of waiting to be 100% correct. And it allows us, again, to fight better in dispersed operations in large-scale combat ops when needed. And I think the last thing I found was that Really, the common thread with both of these things is that it's difficult to believe that the AI is right, and it's difficult to believe that that AM is going to produce a product that's usable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if right now it's only 80% usable, but again, it's in sustainment, is that good enough? Right. And I argue that yes, it is. Lacey, and that's a question we'll come back to in our conversation, right? The idea of we can make machines that can do things, but will we actually believe the machines when they tell us things? Um, yes. Also, I, the smart aleck comment I have for somebody who works in logistics is, do, don't you understand what putting it all electronic is going to do to the carbon paper industry um, if we, we no longer have yes. to fill out forms that have to be kept in multiple copies? I mean, I, I oh, think of think of the station. They'll lose their minds. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you, Jessica. That's great. So um, we'll, we'll come back to you. But uh, Andy, what about your project? When we were looking at uh, topics for research at the beginning of the uh, the school year with the uh, IRP, I, I was uh, really kind of taken with human machine teaming and and what would force structures look like is is more unmanned systems entered entered the force and uh, I mean at the same time we're watching a significant amount of videos coming out of both Ukraine and also the uh, recent wars in, between Azerbaijan and Armenia 
and so it's it's out there this use of of in this case unmanned aerial vehicles but but wide proliferation of not just uh not not just what we traditionally view in our military as the reaper the predator drones but but the repurposing of, of multiple types of, of aircraft. And, and I want to look at how, how does the Army optimize uh, its development implementation of, of unmanned ground systems, the systems we really haven't seen fielded in our force in a, in a wide, wide array yet. And what does that look like? And how do we reap uh, benefits at the strategic level of not just what we normally know as personnel reduced risk, but what that looks like in force structure savings, or, or could unmanned ground systems replace soldiers uh, in our force structure and, and on the battlefield? And, and really, for my argument for the, pa- the paper is we, we should invest an unmanned and autonomous ground systems at the tactical level now uh, to help support the eventual uh, developments and implementation of these systems. And, and a lot of this comes down to uh, the technological gaps that exist. Uh, if if we look at, at uh, what we can get out of it, so uh, unmanned ground systems or unmanned aerial systems, uh, what they offer, the they, they help reduce risk in the three Ds, uh, dirty, dangerous, and dull jobs. And over 30 years, we've seen that proliferate across uh, unmanned aerial systems, but we, we haven't seen it as much at, at the, uh, at, in the, the ground systems. And if you look, uh, FM3O, multi-domain operations, uh, Army Futures Commands, uh, their pamphlet 525-2, uh, Future Operating Environment, they all identify how uh, unmanned systems uh, will form key roles within within future combat. Uh, specifically, unmanned systems should be making first combat. And, and you, if you look at the Army's investing in these things now, uh, you have the uh, optionally manned fighting vehicle is all the a bit of a troubled program in development. It's it's a, a program the Army's pursuing as a Bradley a funding vehicle replacement. You have the uh, next generation combat vehicle cross-functional team is developing the robotic combat vehicle, uh, which is a, an armed system of both light, medium, and heavy. Uh, and then even on the sustainment side, uh, the Army's actually fielding the small multi-purpose equipment transport, a uh, unmanned six by six equipment transport. And they've also been testing the uh, Expedient Leader Follower Program, which is a, a PLS uh, sustainment system, which basically has an automated system which would follow the lead manned vehicle along the road. So the Army's de- they're, we're investing in these programs. Uh, the question I'm looking at is, well, what is it going to take to get these to actually replace uh, force structure in the future? And, and if you, you look at it in, in the near term, there are significant technical ta- challenges uh, there are cultural and policy issues that will prevent this. And uh, if you look in 2018, the uh, DOD released the Unmanned Systems Integrated Roadmap 2017 to 2042. And really, they identified four themes in this that provide challenges to uh, the future development and integration of, of, uh, of unmanned systems, uh, interoperability, autonomy, network and human machine collaboration. And when I compare that to the conversations I'm having with with uh, our organizations that are developing robotic vehicles today, you, you'll see the, the, the themes are still similar. Uh, issues with network, autonomy, uh, policy, and trust still are, are what's going to hold us back from widespread development and fielding. Uh, and, and if you look at network, uh, really all our unmanned systems now operate through teleoperation. An operator is operating that system over a telecommunication system, whether it's tactical network or even a, a cabled system. And so you're not going to 
get away from issues with an electromagnetic an EMS degraded environment uh, without autonomy. So if, if the signal is broken, the system has to operate on its own. Uh, additionally, if you want to reap the benefits of manpower savings, right now the robot combat vehicle, uh, it, it's, it's operated by a crew of two sitting in another vehicle. Well, if a Bradley's crewed by three, you've only re- reduced it by one person. Without autonomy, you're not going to see personnel savings. Uh, autonomy's got its its own developmental issues. Autonomy's it's a combination of many other technologies: uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, computer vision, advanced sensing. Uh, and, and if you follow along with what you see in the civilian world of uh, automotive uh, autonomous automotive vehicles from numerous companies. Uh, they're not where they said they would be a number of years ago. And that's, it's just technical limitations. It's, it's all of those uh, technologies haven't necessarily matured yet. Uh, in the policy realm, this is everything from uh, testing. It's uh, our evaluation frameworks. It's uh, legal frameworks. If you can see the United Nations uh, right now is uh, putting forward uh, limits on autonomous weapon systems. And so those legal frameworks have to develop. And finally, it's trust. It's trust from operators. It is trust. uh, It's trust from leaders. Then it's trust across our our civilian leadership and society in that technology. And uh, I what I found in my my research was that if if we invest at the tactical level uh, now, so instead of trying to replace entire systems with exquisite systems, uh, if, if we look at Focusing at the uh, tactical level with cheaper, simpler systems that evolve over time. So we can focus on iteration, experimentation, and parallel development, uh, supporting an evolutionary advancement, not necessarily revolutionary. You'll, you'll often see we we tend to focus a lot of revolutionary fielding systems. We, we like to develop a thing. It is exquisite. And by the time we hand it to the service member, it is well-tested. We know exactly what it's going to do. Uh, unfortunately, it's a long lead time. And if, if you look at what we can get out of uh, iteration, uh, think about the real world testing and innovation you're seeing in Ukraine. You're seeing soldiers and obviously a, uh, a, a very hard situation as they're defending their nation, but they're taking systems and they're modifying them. They're, they're changing techniques, tactics and procedures out of necessity. And you're seeing cheap, simple drones used in ways that we would have never have conceived. Uh, you think of parallel development and uh, you think about the real world feedback and testing uh, and you think about data collection. So when I when you look at some of uh, the issues with AI, it's going to come down to data sets and uh, machine learning has a the ability to use transfer learning. And so if an AI is trained on a data set, so let's say in the desert, and so the system learns all of its keys on the data set in the desert, you can transfer that information to another system that has never been to the desert that can take advantage of that system. And so a proliferation of more systems across more experimentation, across more users with a cyclical feedback of data can consistently fill through transfer learning other systems. So the, the Army is in a position to take advantage of technologies that's already developing. And, and so as part of its autonomous system and robotic system development, the, the Army's uh, built the modular open systems architecture into these programs. And it's taking comp- uh, advantage of uh, creating what's called robotic technical kernels. Uh, and it's a suite of software across uh, industry that's meant to, to develop into these systems. And so they've already laid the, the foundation for an iterative approach to development. Uh, 
and then if you look at a fielding method for, for getting smaller systems regularly out to units, if you look at our mission command and communication systems, the already, Army already has the capability set fielding program. Uh, since uh, 2012, I believe, was his first fielding. It's, it's an annual fielding system that's meant to regularly uh, bring out the latest in software and communication and networking programs uh, to units in a, in a systematic and cyclical program. We could also use a similar process, if you will, uh, to get these highly complex but ever-evolving technologies out there. Uh, the other benefit we can have of the integration of low-cost, uh, unmanned, and autonomous ground system and tactical formations, it begins the process of cultural acceptance and, and trust in the systems. Uh, I had a great conversation with uh, over the weekend with one of my peers in the IRP. We were talking about you know, trust in technology. And he, he gave an example of uh, he was in a unit that fielded one of the first uh, 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 113 mounted mortar systems with the digital firing program. And they actually had to set up a special training program because none of the mortarmen would believe that the technology could do what it could do. And they wouldn't trust firing live rounds until they were explicitly walked through. And, and so we, we kind of think about that of autonomous systems. And we, we think of uh, you know, Terminator and other you know, multi, you know, things that we see in the in, in, from Hollywood. Uh Trust is important. And so part of that is it's built through regular use uh, and experimentation. Uh, the other pieces we have to look at is policy changes. I, I mentioned earlier the legal frameworks. Uh, use and fielding of these systems can help drive changes to the test, evaluation, verification, and validation, or TEVB, uh, programs we have across the Army and our acquisition system. It can drive conversations with legal frameworks as, as new systems are developed or desire to come online, we could update them. And uh, and finally, we can look at how we use these systems. And my own personal example, uh, we're still using the RQ-11B Raven. I was fielded as a young captain in 2007. Uh, and our my number one concern I had with this system was uh, losing it. It was very easily fell out of the sky with wind or other technical issues. And no matter what I was doing, whether training back at Fort Campbell or uh, combat operations in Afghanistan, my mission quickly went from what I was doing to go find the Raven. And if we, we think culturally, what does that build? Well, it doesn't build a culture of using this thing in place of a person. It builds a culture of, I can't afford to lose this, this, this item of property. And so it can drive conversations on what, what is our policy on these items? Or do they stay with uh, accountability codes of, uh, of not expendable items, or do we make them durable? And, and then finally, I look at a recommendation. Uh, if you look, there are, there are technologies available today that we could put into formations that we could iteratively add technologies as they develop, whether what starts as a quadruped robot with a camera on its back operated through teleoperation could over years with technological development and further fieldings include more autonomy and additional weapon systems if if we lay it out. But right. uh, I'm going to stop there, Ron, and uh, open to any questions. Well, thanks, Andy. And and for both of you, right, I mean, we got back to this idea about trust and the idea about, about training. I mean, I'm sure anybody who has ever served in uniform, especially in their early days, has probably had someone yell at them, right, that fill in blank here is worth more than you are, soldier. Um, and, and so the issue about what do we do with the property that we work with, but the, but gets back to this issue of if we're serious about autonomous, uh, equipment, we're serious about AI, we're serious about machine learning, and we're serious about realizing the benefits of 
having autonomous options. Like Andy, you talked about with the, if you want fewer people to be able to do more things, then we, then we have to be willing, we have to both create the equipment that can do the job, but we also, it's not just about training the, building the equipment, it's about building the soldiers, right? The trust is something that the individual soldier has to feel like, I know that if I push this button, or I know that if I'm looking through this screen, that I have a degree of control and that I know what the equipment's going to do. For both of you, um, where do you see the role of the training of the human side to know what the equipment can do, right? Le leaving aside the question of whether we're going to develop the equipment who's going to be able to do things autonomously. Where are we in training members of the armed forces to trust and to be willing to see how these things work? Or are we, are we really at the very beginning of that? I'd say when it when it comes to the use of, of unmanned systems, I, I think a lot of it's there. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, there isn't a, a soldier who couldn't, you know, hasn't seen uh, either a civilian unmanned, you know, UAV system, and or played with a you know a game station controller of some variety. I, I think AI is is what's going to be something that takes a lot. That, that, that's going to take iteration. That's going to take tactile experience, okay. and you can even just look at within the war college itself and some of uh, the systems that they're developing here with uh, uh, Dr. Barry and just his experiences with army leaders of you know, the way they want to test and poke and see how it works, it, it, especially if you get into anything lethal. I, mm -hmm. I think that is going to be the, the probably they're going to have to see it, understand that there's fail safes, understand the, the, the technology and really the, the reasoning behind it. Cause AI is going to get into how did it come to its decision? Yes. If you look at a, there are there are some of my peers are talking about uh, uh, AI supporting decision making processes and command posts. And so, how how do you if you don't trust the underlying thought process the AI is using to give you an answer, then you're not going to believe what it says to you. But what are the experiences to get there? That's very good. So so and Jessica, for you, right, we're talking about things that are perhaps less lethal, but yes. still, right? Does it does that make it easier? I think it does mm -hmm. to an extent because we have. We have Amazon, mm -hmm. we have Walmart, yeah, right. we have Prime. They're using this when they're doing some of their uh, data decision-making, right? Mm -hmm. Data-driven mm -hmm. decision-making to plan out, hey, these are the items that I want to show this individual because they bought A, B, C, and D. Right. Uh, I know that I can, if I order something through Prime today and I want it by tomorrow, it's going to show mm -hmm. up. Mm -hmm. And I think just by using those as references and saying, hey, this is the same thing we're using, when it comes to sustainment, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What I will say that the trust issue, I think there's a few things. One, senior leaders maybe have a harder time trusting the AI than junior soldiers. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm not sure if that's just culture. Um, I, I don't know. Well, it might not but just be that, but that's that you know certainly part of it, right? Just pl plain old mm -hmm. age, right? Trying to show your dad how your phone works is a little harder. Than, yes. Yeah, right? Go ahead. Yes. Um, you, you show, I, I was showing, we were, I was having a discussion about chat GPT. Mm -hmm with some students and uh, they, it's awful. Why does anybody have it? Students are going to be, they're never going to, you know, be smart enough now. And I, immediately I just thought, wait a minute, no, you're using it wrong. If we're using it to support what we're trying to reference or research or do, I mean, it's a valuable tool. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is um, ensuring that the data is not being hacked, messed with. Um, I had a dream the other night, which was awful that we were using this and it was probably in preparation for the podcast. 
we, we have that effect on our future data. guests, I'm afraid. Go ahead, sorry. <laughs> and if, if someone manipulates the data, because that's yeah. for me would be almost the worst case scenario, it wouldn't be deleting our systems. It's manipulating our data so that something we're trying to send to um, Kuwait actually doesn't go there, but it goes to uh, Vietnam or wherever. And then how do you trace that back to figure out where the the data went wrong and find the person who did it and then get them back out? Like trusting clean data, I think, will be harder mm-hmm. than just getting senior leaders. Well, and, and, but for me, those are the big things. Yeah. And, and I would say that you know what's interesting in both aspects of this uh, from what you what you two have been talking about is on the one hand, right, we're always concerned about the. Uh, the the lethality aspects, right? But in, but even when we're talking about you know whether a box of you know if Amazon sends me a box of colored paper when I ordered white paper, right? I can send it back. But if Amazon sends me, uh, I don't know if they send me seven six two ammo when I wanted nine millimeter ammo, I've got a bigger problem, right? It's not just I'm going to call customer service at the army and complain. Um, and but in both cases, right? It's about uh, even with the machine doing things, right? It's it's how are the human beings interacting with the machine, right? How is how is the information being collected? How is it being entered? How is it being vetted? Um, and so the and and the problem then turns around, right? It's yes, we want to develop the machines, but it's us, right? The fallible meat bags who are supposed to be working the equipment, and how do we make sure that we know what we're doing? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm, we're, we're getting close to the end of this conversation, but this is why I wanted to get to both of you is your decisions to work on AI in the IRP. When you came to the War College, were you already sort of individually disposed towards being interested in these things? Or what was it that got you interested in them? Jessica, I see you shaking your head and this is great. So please tell me. So why did you end up doing this? Um, I was not interested, wasn't paying any attention to it. I don't know what I thought I was going to (laughs) do. I am glad I joined the IRP because it gave me good direction. Uh But I will say as a logistician, but also one in the guard. Mm -hmm. So the systems that Andy Andy gets and the updates he gets to software and all the fancy GWIS stuff, we may get it 10 years later in the guard. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but it's kind of true. And and we are going to have an IRP discussion on the relationship between the components, which, uh, but this this is, we'll put a pin in that, but no, but that's, that's a point worth bringing up every chance we get. Go ahead. Yes. So when I look at having a small (laughs) staff, whether I'm at the division level and have a G4 staff, or I'm down at the battalion with the SPO staff, taking large amounts of data, and trying to even make sense of it, figure out what I'm doing, how we're going to get something somewhere, how are we supporting it, how are just that whole process. I mean, when you're starting in the beginning, it can take months. When we started looking at AI, I thought, oh my gosh, we can give all that time back. If we can do this with AI, I don't need soldiers to do that. Yeah, I'm going to need somebody to QAQC, stay on the loop and say, oh, that's a, no, 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 that really does need to go somewhere else. But if I can give time back, you can't make that. And now you have soldiers you can repurpose to do other things. For me, I thought, what a game changer that would be, especially in an environment right now where we're having a hard time with recruiting, whatever. If we can do that, that's a win. Right. Definitely a win. Andy, how about you with all the with all your fancy big army technology? So uh, I, much like Jessica, one of, one of the things that I've really enjoyed about the IRP uh, was helping focus me in finding the or how I wanted to research. 
in in how I, I fell into AI. So uh, I, as a test for senior at JRTC uh, before coming here, one of our rotations, one of the cross-functional teams uh, actually came down with some of their technology demonstrators. It was a uh, it was actually that SMET system, the six by six vehicle, and mm-hmm. uh, they had they had thrown a uh, thermal optic, an anti tank system, a machine gun on it, and it was meant to give into the op four. You could let them test, play with it, use it in the scenario. Uh, you know, for them, it was it was technical feedback, and it was interesting because the conversation at the time was a lot about its limitations and the, the things the systems couldn't do. And we were talking about the IRP and we we're looking at questions that uh, the, the Army wanted to help with answering whether the Army G3 Futures Command uh, and, and the conversations about human machine teaming and started interesting me. And then I started thinking about what 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 are the possibilities of that system I saw? And you start start digging into like, well, how do we actually get there? And it's, yeah. it's kind of what you had said, Ron, of getting – the technology will come. How do we get the people there and what are the things we can do to – to prime the pump, if you will, to actually be ready as a as an organization uh, to to take advantage of the technology, and so that, that was me. I had a, a little bit of a real world uh, dip my toes into it, watching it, and then uh, kind of a chance to dig in deeper with some of the experts that I've I've been fortunate enough to work with and been connected through with the IRP. Great. And so for both of you, last question: uh, Assuming, as I will, that your IRP is going to go great and you're going to you're going to get your appropriate research credit and you will uh, you'll finish the rest of your coursework, what's going to happen after you graduate from the Army War College in the class of 2023, Jessica? Where are you going? I go back to Kentucky. Mm-hmm. Um, where I will go to the Regional Training Institute as the deputy until I take command in about a year, either there or at our Maneuver Enhancement Brigade. Gotcha. Great. Andy, how about you? Uh, I will head to Central Command, where I will serve as the uh, director of the uh, J-35 uh, Future Operations Cell. Outstanding. Well, both of you, good luck on your presentations at the uh, at the symposium, and good luck on these projects, which are very interesting. Thanks so much for joining us here on A Better Piece to talk about your research at the, at the War College and the IRP. Thank you. Thanks, Rob. It's great having both of you. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs. We're always interested in hearing from you. Send us your suggestions for future programs. Uh, please uh, subscribe to A Better Peace because you know that you want to subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you have subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can find out about us. We're always interested in growing the community for conversations like this one. And even though this conversation is over, We look forward to welcoming you to the next one. And so until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.